Romans 16. We'll be looking at two verses today. Verses 19 and 20. Can y'all hear out of that? Yeah, I think so. It says, For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am therefore glad. I am glad therefore on your behalf. And yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this time here that we can dig into your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. And uh, we would not take this time for granted that we get to open your word and just learn from it, God. And I'm just thankful for this time and thankful to be called your children this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, by way of review, obviously, we're closing up the book of Romans. Um, and Paul, as I brought out the last couple of weeks, kind of closing it in the same way that he opened it, in the sense of he's addressing people. Um, and he addressed people in general in chapter 1. He says to the saints that be at Rome. And then in chapter 16, he starts naming all these people. Um, and he, he, he just before this section told them to greet this person, salute this person, greet that person, greet this person, commend Phoebe. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and then right before this, he says, but mark and avoid those which cause division. So it's just the opposite. He tells them to greet all these other people who are in Christ, serving in the Lord, and then those that cause division, to mark them and avoid them. And now we come to this section here. Um, three points for today. There's no uh, alliteration to this. It's just obedience, discernment, and victorious. So the first point here is obedience. Um, it says, For your obedience is come unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. Now this statement, this is a statement that actually would probably make some people cringe. That some may be leery about. But let me say it's what the Word of God teaches, right? Now you, you may not know this, but there are people that shun at the very thought of speaking about obedience. As though we can never obey. They say it's all about faith in the gospel. It's all about faith. When it's speaking about obedience, it's simply talking about believing the gospel. And that's one side of the ditch that we could fall on, right? That when it's speaking about obedience, all it's talking about is believing the gospel. That's one side of the ditch we can fall on. That our justification before God is faith by faith alone, though, right? However, that doesn't mean that we never obey. We do obey. Then there's the other side of the ditch of the people that all they ever talk about is obedience, right? You have one side that never talks about obedience, and obedience simply means just believe the gospel. You're going to sin, you're going to continually be in sin, just believe the gospel. And then their other side is all they ever talk about is obedience. It's those that you know try to use verses like Hebrews 12, 14 where it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And they'll say that you must reach a certain level of personal holiness or you won't see the Lord. They teach that faith in Christ alone isn't enough to be saved. You must have obedience. 
They're the ones that reinterpret faith to mean faithfulness. But it flies in the face of passages as we've already been through in Romans. Romans 4 and verse 5 where it says, But to him that worketh not, but believes on him that, um, believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And Titus 3, 5, where it says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we must be careful not to fall in, in either side of this ditch here. We are justified by faith alone. When we believe the gospel, we are justified. Not after we believe and live an obedient life, but the moment that we believe, we are justified before God. So now what is Paul saying here? He's saying that these Christians were obedient to God and people knew it. It was no secret that they were obedient. And I don't believe for a second that Paul was just speaking about their obedience and believing the gospel. But their obedience to God's commands. Their obedience to the Great Commission and the outflowing of the Great Commission. And what do I mean by that? Well, those in Rome were certainly preaching the gospel to every creature. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul says that their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. How was their faith spoken of throughout the whole world? Because they were going in and speaking it to everybody. So everyone was hearing the gospel from these people. But not just that. Because the Great Commission is not just go and preach the gospel. But to teach them to obey Christ. It's to go and preach the gospel and teach them to obey Christ. So this is the outflowing of the Great Commission because they are not only preaching the gospel, but they are obeying Him. That's how it works. That's how Christianity works, right? It's not simply you know standing on a soapbox and preaching the gospel and then praying that God saves His elect. It's when God saves His elect you are actively involved in their lives. You teach them the commandments of God. You walk with them. And when they fall, you help pick them up. You hold them accountable. That's what true evangelism is. You know, we speak about doing evangelism, which is, you know, we, oftentimes we're just talking about going out and preaching to, to people and handing out gospel tracts. But that's not really evangelism. Evangelism is when God saves that person, they call us. We, we go to their house. We have them over to our house. We teach them. It's intentional walking with them after God saves them. And if you aren't doing that, you can't call yourself an evangelist. You know the traveling evangelist, right? What do they do? They go to this place and preach the gospel, if they're actually even preaching the gospel. But they go here and preach the gospel. Then they go to the next town and preach the gospel. To the next town and preach the gospel. But they're not actively involved in these people's lives, walking alongside of them and teaching them God's Word. Which is what we're called to do. That's what the Great Commission is. So after God saves someone... Through the preaching of the gospel, they obey Him. And this is not some new truth. This, this is something that was promised in the Old Testament, right? In Ezekiel 36, I'm just going to read, you don't need to turn there, in verses 24 through 27, 
God says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Notice, God says, I will do these things to you. I will bring you out of this place. I will put you in this land. I will cleanse you. I will take you from your idols. I will put a new heart in you and I will cause you to obey. In other words, there are not Christians who don't obey because God causes them to obey. If you run into someone that says they're a Christian, but they never obey and live in constant rebellion to God, you can rest assured that they don't actually know Him. I don't care what their mouth says. And what they need is not more law saying you need to get right. You need to start doing this or doing that. That's not what the person needs that professes Christ and does nothing. What they need is the gospel. They need to be saved. Because those that are saved obey God and people know it. They see that you've changed. They see that you were a drunkard but now are not. They see that you were an idolater but now are not. To say in the words of the, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he names a whole, bunch, whole list of sins and he says, but such were some of you. That's what you used to be. That's not what you are anymore. That's not your identity anymore. You have been washed and justified. You have been set aside by God for God's purposes. You have been sanctified. And that's what these people in Rome were like. They were saved out of idolatry and God has cleansed them and set them apart for their work and now they were doing it and it reached or it was reported of by all. Now all there must mean every single person in the whole world that's ever existed, right? No, that's not what it means. We know that. And Paul says he was glad on their behalf. Your, your obedience is being reported of by all, and I am glad. It was a joy to Paul's ears to hear that those in Rome were being obedient to Christ. You know why? Because he's seen the Great Commission actually play out. Not just so-and-so in Rome was preaching on a soapbox and everybody's walking by and nobody's ever doing anything, but that they, they were actively fulfilling the Great Commission. And people were actually obeying Christ. And they were actually taking the Gospel to the nations and it says, and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching the nations to obey every word that Christ commanded. He could see this and it brought him great joy. And it should be to all Christians when we hear of the obedience of our brethren, right? When we see, we see, you know, the Apostle John says it in 3 John. There's only one chapter, but chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I rejoiced greatly 
when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. And then he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And he wasn't talking about he had children at that church with some lady or something. He's talking about those to whom he preached to and the Lord birthed them, born again, and they, they were considered his children through preaching like uh, Paul was to Titus. Or Titus was to Paul, really. He says, Titus, mine own son. Titus wasn't really Paul's son, but it was through the preaching of Paul that Titus was saved and he calls him his son. The same thing with here with John. Through his preaching, these people were saved. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that you guys are walking in the truth. So it should bring us great joy when our brethren are being obedient. When we see our brothers and sisters obeying, we should be glad. Let's move on to our next point here. Discernment. Still in verse 19. For your obedience is come unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Though was, Paul was glad about their obedience, he still never ceased to warn them. You guys are being obedient and it's spoken of by all men. Yet, I'm still going to warn you. Remember the previous two verses. What we just saw last week. Paul was telling them to mark and avoid them that cause division. So he's still warning. He warned them there and he is still warning them again. And what Paul is addressing here is in their minds, right? He's going to their minds. He's saying, I want you wise in one thing and simple in another. If you remember, just from those previous verses, that those that the division causers deceive, they were called simple. They deceived the simple. And it means innocent or harmless. So they deceived the weak, harmless, innocent ones. And Paul now says he wants them simple concerning evil. Now, it's a little different word here for simple. It means unmixed, pure, as in wine or metal. So he wants them unmixed concerning evil. How does that happen? How do you stay unmixed concerning evil? By staying away from it. By rejecting that which is evil. By avoiding that which is evil. And in our context, by marking and avoiding those that do evil. Paul commands them to be unmixed with evil. And as I brought up last week, that's not making excuses for those that are division causers, but simply staying away from them. That was the command. It's to be unmixed with them. Wine mixed with coffee probably wouldn't taste that great, right? Though I like both of them, I would never mix them together. Because I don't want my coffee mixed with anything either. Just give me beans and water. I don't want sugar and cream and all that other stuff that some of you men in here probably drink. <laughs> but it's to be unmixed.
Not hanging out with a heretic on Friday nights and coming to church on Sunday. But avoiding them. It's, it's the same thing with all evil. It's not hanging out with evil on Saturday night and then singing psalms on Sunday morning. It's to be unmixed. This is clearly a teaching in Scripture. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Now obviously we could go all over the Scriptures for this truth here. Matthew 16 and verse 5. It says, And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because you have brought, not, brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I speak, I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is in my notes, but it's, it's quite funny how Jesus is like, do you remember five loaves and 5,000 guys? And you're worried about bread? Or, you know, the seven loaves and 4,000? 4, and, and we took baskets home with us and you're worried about bread? You think I'm talking about bread? Jesus commands them to beware or take heed of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he obviously wasn't talking about bread, but beware of their teaching. But why? Why is it called leaven? Why would Jesus can call their false teaching leaven? But to, Paul, to quote Paul somewhere else in Galatians, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the picture is that this thing, which is very small, consumes the whole. And Jesus was saying, their doctrine, though it may be small in appearance, will overtake you. You'll start by believing that though circumcision for justification may not be true, the Pharisees teach a whole bunch of other good stuff, though, don't they? I mean, they teach all kinds of other good stuff, though circumcision for justification is not true. Then you'll go to the next step, and even though circumcision for justification isn't true, we should still get circumcised. And then your next step is, they aren't circumcised, therefore they must not be saved. Then you'll be a full-blown heretic Pharisee. So stay unmixed. Leave them alone and don't mix up with them. Especially now for us in our age, right? 
I mean, we have 2,000 years of sound teacher, teachers. I need not mix up with one who's questionable. I don't need to. You say, this guy, he, he, he's good on all these points, but this, he's a heretic. I don't need his stuff. I have, I have so many books now that I can't even read all of them. By sound men in the faith. Stay unmixed from evil. But how do you do this? Or how do you know to do this? Or better yet, how do you know who or what is evil? Right? Yeah, that would be the burning question, right? It says to stay unmixed from evil. But how do I know what's evil? How do I know who is evil? By being wise to that which is good. That's what he says. I would have you to be wise to that which is good and simple, unmixed to that which is evil. So the question is now, how are you to be wise to that which is good? By being in God's Word. By digging into God's Word. By digging deep into His Word. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm personally not one to go, for those, you know, the Bible in a year program. I don't have anything against them. It's just not for me. And I know some of you guys can go through them and you, you get great benefit from it. But it is not for me. And here's why. Because I'll start reading Genesis chapter 1. And then all of a sudden, I'll, I'm, I come across something maybe I don't understand. And I have to stop and I have to know what it means. So I may get half, half a chapter into a Bible reading program and I end up with a Bible dictionary out, you know, concordance out, uh, commentaries out for the next hour. So they're not for me. But like I said, some of you guys can, can, can grow from those and get, get great benefit from that. And that's how we learn to be wise. By digging in. Now that may mean to you reading four chapters in a day. But to me it might be reading four verses in a day. But really diving into those verses. It's not simply going through the motions of reading a chapter a day, right? You know, I've done that too. Y'all, I guarantee you, I could say this, and every single person in here has probably done this. You've read three chapters of the Bible, and you just went through the motions. You don't have a clue what those three chapters were about. I just read it, and I was actually thinking about something that happened at work yesterday. For the whole time I was reading, I was just going through, and I saw the words, but I didn't gather anything out of it. That's not what we want to do. We want to, we want to learn what God's Word means. Not just, you know, flying over God's Word and seeing the trees and the ocean, right? That's what, you know, we could call that like an overview. Where you're flying over and you, you see like there's some trees and there's, there's a nice ocean there. But we gird up our minds. And we land that plane and we walk through those forests. And we dive deep into those oceans. You know, men will mine the earth for gold and silver and precious stones. And we have in our possession something far greater than all of that. So do we let it collect dust on our shelf or do we dig in deeply? That's how we are to be wise to that which is good. 
by studying and digging into God's word and seeing the precious wisdom and knowledge we can gain from it. And the more that we are wise to that which is good, the easier it is to be unmixed with evil. So our last point here, I'm going to go back here to Romans 16. I'm going to read verse 20. Last point is victorious. It says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now when we read this verse, I think we can we could see possibly a few meanings from this text. And you can argue with me after service about which one's correct. I'll just say yes. That's probably correct. I'll display what these are. The first meaning I can see from this is that Satan that he, he's talking about here, he says, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan. That that Satan right there, that's He's talking about the same person for verses 17 and 18. The deceiver. The one that causes division. Those that were within the church causing division. And those that cause division, those that spread gospel slander, we know the word of God actually calls them diabolos, right? Which is translated devil. They are treated by the Word of God as though they were the devil themselves. Those that cause division. The same word that's used for those that sow discord or gossip or slander is the exact same word that's used for Satan. Listen to this from Revelation 20 and verse 2. In case you, you don't believe me, it says, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent. Y'all know who he's talking about. John says, which is the devil and Satan. The word devil there, same word that's used for a gossip, slander, division causer. The exact same word. And bound him a thousand years. So inevitably, Paul is saying that this accuser of the brethren, this division causer, this devil, will be crushed shortly. That's what the word bruised means right there. I wish the, I wish the translations did. I don't know if any of the translations translates it crushed. Just like in um, was it Genesis 3, 15, that he will crush the head of the serpent. And not just he's going to bruise his head. He's going to crush his head. And in Isaiah 53, when it says the father, it says it, it pleased the father. And most translations says to bruise him. But it means crush him. So the second way we can see this, and you guys may or may not like this view, is that Paul was talking about a first century Jew who denied Christ and persecuted the church. You're like, why would Paul use such language against the Jewish people? Isn't that, you know, anti-Semitic? Well, first off, Paul was a Jew himself, right? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
He was a Jew himself, but he was a Jew that believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Paul's mind, those in Christ are neither Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ. In Christ, there's no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile. Those outside of Christ that rejected their Messiah, Paul didn't have very nice words about them. Neither did Jesus. Remember, if you've ever read Matthew 23... He calls them whited, in the KJV, sepulchers, tombs. He calls them pretty much, you're you're a beautiful casket, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Oh, you look so good on the outside to the Jews of that day. And he pronounces a series of woes upon them in Matthew 23. The Apostle John called them the Antichrist. And John says, listen in Revelation 3.9, he says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. John isn't saying that there were Gentiles that were pretending to be Jews. He's saying that They are not Jews inwardly and spiritually, but outwardly and physically. That's what the scriptures always teach us in in that, right? Remember going back to Romans chapter 2. He is a true Jew, which is one inwardly, with circumcision of the heart and not of the flesh. But these ones in, in... which were of the synagogue of Satan. It's funny that he would use the synagogue of Satan because that's where they met was in the synagogues. It was a synagogue of Satan. They were of the circumcision and they actually had a genealogy to prove it, prove it as well. However, because they rejected the Messiah, they are not true Jews, but imposters. So Paul could have been talking about them in Romans 16. The last way it may be interpreted, and remember there's only one correct interpretation, interpretation of any passage. I'm not telling you all three of these interpretations are right because they could all three be wrong. But not all three of them could be right because there's only one way to interpret any passage of Scripture. We can get different applications from those passages, but what Paul wrote is what it meant. Whatever he meant by it is what it meant. The last way it may be interpreted, which is why we sung this song beforehand, is that the church will march forth and in so doing, crush Satan's head. Not literally, right? Not like Satan comes into our church and we hold him down and each of us stomp on his head and crush his head, but figuratively in the sense that the church will be victorious and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Due to the life, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord who has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He sends forth His people with His message and He will prevail over evil. Actually, I'm going to turn here. I I don't have this in my notes, but when we sing sing in uh, Psalm 2 today, it reminded me of it. In Revelation chapter 2, He quotes Psalm chapter 2. In verse 26, and he says, And he that overcometh and keeps my word unto the end. Who's he talking about? He that overcometh and keeps my word unto the end. He's talking about Christians. To him will I give power over the nations. 
and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. <laughs> this is Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 2. He's quoting Psalm chapter 2 and saying this applies to you. You know why it applies to you? Because it has been given to me, and I therefore rule through you. And I will prevail over evil through the church. Jesus works through His church, and as He's working through His church, we are continually crushing Satan's head. As He promised in the garden to Eve, Christ crushed the head of the serpent, and through His church, He is continually doing so. So in other words, the church will prevail. We will march forward victorious. In the hymn, the words of the hymn that we sang, it says, From victory unto victory, His army shall He lead, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. Now whether or not that is what Paul means in this text. It's still true of the church. So let's march forth taking dominion for the name of Christ. Let's be wise unto that which is good and shun evil. Do away with evil. Get away from evil. Avoid evil so that our obedience is known unto all. Let's move into our application here. to the unbeliever. Everything in this text today is the opposite for the unbeliever. You have no obedience to God that is spoken about. You are wise unto evil and simple to that which is good. There is no peace with God for you, and Satan will not be under your feet shortly. And there is no grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you. If you reject Christ, what, you will, be, what will be reserved for you is only justice and wrath. Everything that will be given to you in this life will only serve to increase your judgment. You will stand condemned on judgment day and there's only one way out of that. It's not through your obedience. It's not through staying away from evil. You couldn't do that anyways. It's through the obedience of Jesus Christ. See, that's why He came to earth. To keep the law that you and I break. And He did so as a representative, as a federal head for those that the Father gave Him. He kept the law for His elect and by doing so fulfilled righteousness. The righteousness that is required by the law that none of us have, He earned it. Then He went to a Roman cross to die for our sins. For all the sins of those that the Father gave Him. He took away their sins by having them accounted to Him on that cross. And three days later, He rose from the grave defeating death and hell, and sin, and Satan. And ascended to the Father's right hand where He sits victorious and reigns now. And your call this morning is to believe and repent of your sins.
to look to Him, not yourself. You can't make it to heaven without Him. You can't obey enough. You can't be good enough. He did it all, and if you reject Him, there's no other way. So as an ambassador of Christ this morning, I plead with you to repent and believe upon Him. And to us believers here, obviously going through this text, you can see there's probably a lot of application that we could make out of this text. But let's start here. Is your obedience being spoken about abroad of all men? Do people know that you're a Christian? And I don't mean by simply you condemning their sinful way of life. Oh, I know he's a Christian because he speaks out about every single sin. He's always condemning sin, so he must be a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. You know, that's what a lot of people do. They condemn everyone. So yes, they know or assume you're a Christian simply by what you speak against. However, can they look at your life of obedience and tell? Can they see a faithful follower of Jesus Christ or just a person who speaks against everybody else's sins? See, in first century Rome, when you became a Christian, you quit worshiping the hundred plus fake gods that they had. And you started to worship one true God. You started to worship Christ. You quit going to their temples and, and started gathering with the saints. You, you didn't just stop going to their parties, which I won't get into detail on the Roman pagan parties, but you started to read God's Word and pray. You started to evangelize. You not only, you not only stopped trying to steal from people, but you started to give to people. You quit trying to tear people down with your words, but sought to build them up. Do you think this is not still true today? If you think your obedience is being spoken about by all men, and you're staying home from church on Sunday to watch a football game, or because your kid has a soccer tournament, or any, you know, golf is best, best on Sundays, right? You aren't gathering with the saints. You're scared to talk about Christ. When the topic of religion comes up, you know, you're the person that changes the subject to the, what the weather's going to be like. Don't be deceived, brethren. People see this. And your obedience isn't being spoken about by all, but your disobedience. Have you ever noticed that, you know, sometimes the unbeliever, you've been around this unbeliever for a long time and you go to preach Christ to them, but they've noticed all your sins. But you did this, but you did that. That's their objection, right? How you act. Not based upon the truth that you're speaking to them, but obviously if that was true, why did you act like this? Now obviously this isn't always justified, right? Because we still sin as believers. However, don't think for a second that those outside of the church aren't watching your actions. Seeing what you're doing. Those fam friends and family and people you work with, 
And when you go to speak Christ to them, they laugh because they see how you act. And this is a testimony to the faithfulness of this church in Rome that those outside of the church spoke about the, their obedience. It wasn't just those, it wasn't just, you know, um, what they call it, peanut gallery. You know, it, was, it wasn't just speaking to other one, one another like, oh, I did this this week. You did that. Oh, wow, you're so great. Ooh, look, I, I did this. It was spoken of those outside of the church. And it was spoken of those outside of the church, not in the, you know, the person that every single time they get around somebody, they're, they're quick to tell them all the stuff that they do. Oh, I do this for these people, and I did this for these people, and that's not what this is talking about. People heard of their faith throughout the whole world. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1. And their obedience was spoken, spoken about by all. People see it. So let us seek to obey Christ more. And repent openly when we sin against him. Right? What's wrong with that? When the person says, well, Jeremy, I know what you're preaching, but I saw how you did this. Look, man, I'm sorry. I'm not perfect. You know, I, I strive to do good and I fail. Will you forgive me? And in the meantime, what are you? what's going on with your sins? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? To repent openly so that our obedience can be spoken of by all. Let's go to our last point here, our call to war. I can see, obviously, once again, our call to war could be a lot. It's not just in obedience, but in discernment. Now, let me say this before, let me preface this before I get into this. I do believe there's people that are gifted with discernment above others. There's some people that, that believe God gifts them where they can discern stuff easier, faster. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm just talking about all of us in here. Discernment isn't just knowing the difference between good and evil, right? You can say, discernment's easy. I know what's good and I know what's evil. Well, it's not always about just what's good and what's evil, but what is good and almost good, right? And this is played out not just in teaching, but in our actions. In teaching, we should be able to rightly see when something is heresy. If I get up here, if I got up here today and preach heresy, every single person in this church should approach me after service and say, that was wrong, that's heresy, and the Word of God says this, Jeremy. If someone says, we're saved by grace through faith, that doesn't necessarily give them a pass. You know who says that? Roman Catholic Church. They will rightly admit we're saved by grace through faith. However, they have a different definition of grace than we do. They do not believe that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That was the sticking point with Luther with the Roman Catholics. 
It wasn't that they, were, they, weren't, they weren't saying that we're saved by grace through faith. He was saying it was alone. See, that's discernment. There are those that claim sola fide, right? Faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. There's those that claim sola fide and they will actively say, I believe in sola fide, and then at the other side of their mouth, teach that faith is faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness are not the same. That's damnable. That's discerning. discernment, seeing and knowing that difference. But we can also see this in our actions. We can see that it may be good to read a theological book, right? It may be good, and I would say it is good, to pick up, you know, maybe a book from John Gill or Edwards or Spurgeon and, and dig into it, just dig into it. But it's not good if your Bible has been sitting on your shelf for months on end. <clears throat> Discernment tells you to pick up your Bible and read it more than any other book. You know, I was actually convicted of this as a young man. I'm younger man, I guess. I'm still a young man, even though I'm a grandfather. In my 20s, I'd, you know, I'd read every single theological book I could get my hands on. I, I'd... I stuffed myself with theological books. And apart from Sunday and Wednesday, a lot of times my Bible never got touched. Because I was busy reading every single book that every reformer put out. And then I decided to just put all these books to the side and read through the Old Testament, which I had never even read through. Reformed, never even read through the Old Testament. Still to this day, I'm not as proficient in the Old Testament as I am in the New Testament. It's not because I haven't read it. It's just, it's a lot. God's Word is so deep. And oh, the joy that I'd get from reading through those Old Testament stories, historical narratives. that no other book could give me. You could spend every day of your life, all day, in this book here, this book alone, never needing another book. And you know what's great about this book? Is I know that there's not one sentence in this book that is in error. As the greatest men that I've read, you could probably grab a book on my bookshelf today, and I'll still put like, question mark on, on, a, on a sentence like, is this really true? Or I'll put a verse like, this verse actually says the opposite of what you're saying, even though I love and respect these men, and I would recommend them to everybody. That's not in my Bible. Like, is this verse true? Yes, every single word, every single, every single jot and tittle is true. But that's discernment. It's good to read theological books, but it's not as good as reading the Bible. It's good to fellowship with our brethren, right? We can all say that is good. That helps build us up. That helps edify us to, edify, to, to fellowship with our brethren. And we are commanded to do so and how great it is to do so. But if I'm neglecting my family so I could be around brothers and sisters, it's not good. 
If I'm neglecting my time in prayer so I can be around brothers and sisters, it's not good. In other words, if fellowship with the brethren is taking place of my fellowship with God, it's not good. Brethren, we should know these things. And I'm probably beating a dead horse in here to you guys. However, I've witnessed this stuff, you know. And you can't tell me the Holy Spirit hasn't witnessed it too. In your life or my life. And convicted about it. I'm spending too much time in this book. I'm spending too much time with this brother and not doing what I should be doing. I'm spending too much time... You know, without even getting into, the, you know, watching television, playing video games. And these are good things that we're doing. And the Holy Spirit does convict us. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, Never resist the urge to pray. And I add to that, never resist the urge to obey. If, it, if all of a sudden I'm doing something and the Spirit convicts me to start praying, pray right then. Not, I'll go home later and pray. Just pray right then. Are you saying lay down, prostrate? and No. Just say a prayer. You know, that's one of the good things that you, you should, I would say all of us should get into practices in my notes either. But if somebody says, hey, will you pray for me about this situation? Just go ahead and say it right then. If the Spirit is convicting you to do something, do it. Don't quench the spirit. But obey right then. So let us as brethren, not only use discernment, let's pray for discernment and help our brethren out when it comes to discernment. There's a reason why Paul warned this church. That's because all of us need warned of this. Even though you're being obedient, be careful, brethren. There is that which is evil out there. Stay away from it. Be wise unto that which is good and take forth the gospel into the world and love those around you for the advancement of God's kingdom and the glory of His name. Amen.